What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 76 of The Next Byte, and this one is all about the future of autonomous driving. That's where your car drives you instead of you driving it. We talk about benefits that will come about from teams from MIT and Carnegie Mellon, cleaner, greener, and faster driving, as well as cars that will understand how to drive themselves when you're off the road. I think it's an interesting future, and it'll be fun, so let's buckle up and drive into episode 76. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is The Next Byte Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. Okay, folks, like we said, this episode is all about the future of driving, thanks to autonomous driving. Um, I think a good primer, though, before we jump into any of this content, though, we'll be checking out this article from our sponsor, Mauser Electronics. Um, as you well know, they're if you've been listening to this podcast at all, we're big fans of them, but also they're one of the world's most prominent and most prestigious electronic suppliers. And as a result of that technical industry knowledge that they have, their relationships with their partners, they've got a really, really strong understanding of new emerging technologies, and they've got great ways to explain it um, on their technical resources on their website. And so one of our favorite resources that we've linked today is their applications flowchart um, decision tree type thing for automotive and ADAS applications. Um, if you ever took controls engineering, this looks just like a block diagram to you. Um, it'll show all the different components as part of an ADAS or adaptive driver assistance systems um, technology. But what it really was interesting to me is it shows all the different blocks, all the different components that are working together to make your car with ADAS features work. I mean, it explains each of them how they work. So they've got the MCU, the PHY, the DAC, low pass filters, radar transceivers, RF front end power supplies, radar receivers, all this stuff that sounds like just Greek to me. But after <laughs> checking out this block diagram, understanding it, they've got examples of how each component works. And then you can also click on a link and see um, some examples of certain like components you could buy if you were to want to try and build one of these on your own. Dude, so, this is sick. I, I, I just pulled it up. Super awesome. Um, Working at a car company, to be honest, I've heard a lot of these acronyms before, um, and now I'm excited to read this article and actually understand what my self-driving engineer friends are talking about when they say that they're working on the MCU or the PHY or the DAC. Yeah, I, I just pulled it up out of curiosity, and I love how they've broken it down. It's like every single subsystem has its own section, so you can follow the block diagram to reference like, oh, if I care about the radar system, what's happening there? I, I love this. Yeah, and you know, as someone who maybe more than others is, uh, has bad memories from controls engineering class. Um, I was a little bit intimidated opening up this block diagram, but honestly, um, they do a great job of explaining every step along the way. So I think it's worth checking out, and that's why we've linked it in the show notes to this episode. Are you telling me you didn't have a blaster in controls, Dan? Come on. I, I loved um, understanding controls. Getting to the understanding part was the part that was tricky for me. I feel you, man. Awesome. Well, let's just jump right into our first article for the day. Um, it's titled Cleaner, Greener, and Faster Driving. This is an awesome one, I think, coming out of MIT. Um, and I don't know, I'm going to start it off with a question. Don't you think red lights suck? I mean, I think red lights suck. I don't know about you, man. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. It, it feels like a personal attack, if I'm being honest with you. I, every time I see a red light, it just ruins my day. Yeah, me too. And, and I'm one of those people that... Um, 
maybe more often than others. I feel like if it's like a coin flip that you'll come up to a red light. For me, it's it's more like a 75 or an 80% chance that I'll hit a red light. Nelly always gets mad at me um, when we're in the car together because I, somehow I always, whenever I'm in the car with her, I seem to get caught at a red light. You um, manifest the negative energy. That's what it is. I, I guess that's what it is. Um, but so red lights suck, right? As, especially if you're thinking about it from an efficiency perspective um, as an engineer. Um, the idling of a car at a red light, that's a huge waste mm-hmm. of energy and then also emissions. Um, and even if you're not worried about, you know, cars with emissions, right? If you're talking about zero emission vehicles like electric vehicles, there's actually a lot of energy lost in the um, braking down to light and then accelerating after it. Um, it. It is a huge efficiency kill no matter which way you look at it. Obviously, for... Um, emission emitting vehicles right internal combustion engine vehicles that's even worse right so if you've ever timed it perfect right you get that like kind of nice feeling in you when you're driving up to a light and you know you got it perfect feels like good luck to human drivers definitely feels like good luck to me because there's no way i can do it but these engineers from mit they're looking at this saying can ai help control a fleet of vehicles in traffic right at each intersection to make sure that every single time you come up to a light, it's green and you never have to come to a full stop. So that's their goal to never have to force a pack of vehicles to be in stop and go traffic and instead slow down a little bit, slow down enough so that crossing traffic can make it through the light and then they can pass through when the light is green. I mean, you know, the, the panacea there being like, if you roll up to a light and it's red um, you slow down just enough that the light turns perfectly green when you get there. You never have to hit the brake, and then you can keep going. So I was going to say, I don't, I don't know about you, but this is kind of like a game I play with myself every time I'm commuting to work. Like, you know, that's a route I've established. Like, I, I know the lights. I, I know how traffic's building up. And every time I'm going home or going to work, I'm trying to time it perfectly. Now, the, the struggle with that is that there's this unpredictable variable which is other drivers that can really mess that up right yeah exactly and that that actually leads perfectly into the next segment what i want to talk about here is we don't really think about it right because our brains are meant to process these um, changing signals these changing scenarios where you are able to make quick decisions on a flash that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to reverse engineer the human brain because the brain is so good at making split decisions given all the different types of inputs um, so we don't really think about it, but for to train an AI algorithm to control a car or even worse, a whole group of cars through an intersection, um, you don't think about the billions of different scenarios, the, the lanes changing, signals, speeds, other vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists, the weather, all these different variables cause billions of different scenarios that it makes it really, really hard to train a rigorous AI model to understand what exactly to do um, when you're coming up to an intersection in a car. Um, And the additional wrinkle here is the traditional way you train an AI model or like a, you know, neural network to understand how to control something with this many variables is you say, here's the good outcome, here's the bad outcome, and you use reinforcement learning. So when it does something right, you reinforce it with a reward, or if it does something bad, you you penalize it so that it understands what are the good things and what are the bad things. The incentives, though, in, in car travel are a little bit conflicting, right, because you want a system that reduces the amount of energy consumption, which means that it goes slower, but you also want something that limits the impact on travel time, meaning it goes faster. So it's a little bit of a twist there where it becomes tricky to teach an algorithm, oh, this is exactly how you control a car 
um, through an intersection with this many variables because at the same time while it's trying to reduce energy emissions or energy output it's also trying to max or to minimize um, travel time which means it wants to be going faster and those those two variables kind of butt heads with each other yeah so it's it's optimizing multiple different factors and you know there's layers to it uh it's got to do the trade-off analysis and then it's got to understand that, you know, if it's an empty road, sure, I can floor it if the lights are green and I, can, I know when the next light is coming on. But if there's two or three other cars ahead of me and if I know how fast they're going, then I got to take that into account to determine how fast I should be going to, again, optimize the time to destination. Um, well, I guess it's, it's going to bring us to our uh, favorite part of every topic, which is <laughs> the secret sauce. So what's the secret sauce here? Yeah, so... I want to kind of talk about how t- uh, typical approaches have gone up sure. to today and then what the, this team is doing differently. So the typical approach, you know, as civil engineers or mathematicians, um, they want to use like some type of mathematical model to calculate what's the perfect intersection. And I don't know if you've seen these videos on Instagram or TikTok like I have of like the perfect intersection where it's like actually just a giant roundabout or a bunch of like clover leaves path passing each other and they assume that every car does a perfect zipper method at each merge point which Um, never happens by the way exactly right so you can be a civil engineer you can design the perfect intersection and then when we talk about all these different scenarios right all these different variables lanes signals vehicles speeds pedestrians cyclists the weather that perfect intersection is almost definitely going to fail in the real world so it works well on paper it works well on your simulation models but not in real life so what they wanted to do is use a neural network use an algorithm they made a few basic assumptions so that it can you know make the problem solvable and make a few constraints so one of the constraints that they they gave the system so that it was able to solve the problem more efficiently is that it assumed that every single vehicle on the road um, was autonomous and had like safety ADAS features. So they're kind of planning for a future where every single car in the road is autonomous. It's taking stock of what the other cars around it are doing um, and then understanding how to drive itself based on its surroundings. The other assumption that they made is they tried to only incentivize the model to make sure that the cars don't come to a complete stop. So that what they wanted to do was minimize stop and go traffic. Every other thing, they kind of let it, let it calculate things on its own. So Remember, we're not. They didn't tell it to reduce fuel consumption. They didn't tell it to increase travel time. The only thing that they told it to do was to never, ever, ever make that there's a stop, you know, stop and go scenario. That's because they know that stop and go traffic is one of the main, you know, root causes for high fuel consumption, and it's also one of the main root causes for slow travel time. So they they kind of root caused the middle of that paradox, right, and then told this algorithm you never ever ever want any of these cars in this intersection to come to a complete stop but by optimizing for you know never stopping or stopping as little as possible they are actually reducing you know emissions and exactly because it's the acceleration out of a stop that burns a lot of emissions and it's the slowing down into that stop that you know coming to a complete stop that really really ruins the travel time and creates a lot of traffic Got it. So, so the algorithm is optimizing for that one parameter, and as a side effect, it's actually increasing the efficiency, um, decreasing the time to get to somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. Exactly. Love it. And so, so they started with the assumption for this neural network that it can control every single car on the road to allow it to kind of understand what's the ideal scenario, build a few um, 
they call them like heuristics. So neural pathways for that to understand, you know, even though there's a ton of different variables, it, it knows and recognizes patterns to try and, you know, control the scenario to make it into a favorable situation, favorable situation, meaning no stop and go traffic. So they did a bunch of different simulations with trial and error method of maybe there's a car, car involved that comes to a stop on accident, or there's a bicyclist crossing the road. They did a bunch of these different scenarios to try and make it more rigorous. And when there was a hundred percent control um, of every single vehicle on the road by this neural network and it's in its best scenarios, it was able to reduce fuel consumption by 18% reduce carbon dioxide emissions in internal combustion engine cars by 25% and boost travel speeds by 20%. So that's the perfect scenario. It is able to reduce the amount of energy consumption, reduce the amount of emissions and increase travel speeds by up to 20%. That's wins across the board and it's not it's not like a small increase either. That's a very noticeable um boost in performance. Yeah, that, that's a big deal. And they, they mentioned that even if they could only control 25% of the vehicles, it still gives them 50% of the benefits in terms of fuel and emissions reduction. So it's kind of that nonlinear, um, they called it a low, low barrier to entry, right? So they don't need to control every single car on the road. As long as there's an assumption that every single car on the road has ADAS features and it is in some sort of like adaptive cruise control or self-driving mode, that they only need to use their algorithm to control 25% of the vehicles on the road and they can still get 50% of the total benefit. So it kind of incentivizes people to adopt this early. And if even if you have only a small number of early adopters, right, 25% of the people on the road, it benefits everyone across the board, even if they're not part of the you know group of vehicles that's controlled by this algorithm. You know, to, to go on a slight tangent, um, it, it does bring up about an interesting question of, as we move towards an autonomous future when it comes to uh, personal vehicles and things like that, will there be one universal standard that all these manufacturers will adhere to? Because right now, you know, Tesla has their own autopilot. Then you have Cruise. Then you have, uh, what is it, Argo AI that's working with Ford to do their own sort of like AI stuff. Yeah. Is there going to be one thing, one protocol that they all integrate with or they all adopt moving forward? Because I feel like that would make sense, right? You have cars that talk to each other. They improve using each other's data. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical there, right? Like it, it's hard for people to work together. But at the same time, the optimist in me is saying like this is the perfect place for someone – with a certain open source protocol to come about and unite everyone. Um, and, and you're right, there is benefits for everyone to be able to collaborate with one another. Um, and working in the automotive industry, I have heard of people using like connected car systems to understand what other vehicles on the road are doing and communicate back and forth with what they're trying to do. So I, I think it's a future that everyone's planning for and maybe waiting for someone, maybe a market leader or someone else who's a um, you know, neutral third party to come about with an open source protocol um, that everyone can agree on and work together with. So maybe that, that's a huge market opportunity for someone who's listening to the podcast, right? If, you, if you've got an understanding of autonomous vehicles and also an understanding of um, policy and how to make people work together, now's your chance, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if, if you do embark on this journey, keep us updated. We'd love to talk about it. And I'd love to invest. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get in there too if I can. Uh, but that is a great point to transition us to Article 2, and we're, we're going to stick with autonomous driving, um, as you probably know by now. But we're going to move on to Carnegie Mellon University and their efforts to figure out off-road autonomous uh, traversing. Th this is a weird one because when I think about like, I don't know, autonomous cars, it's usually, you know, my drive to work sucks. It would be great 
if there was a program that could do this, it could limit accidents, X, Y, and Z. And I think about off-roading and I'm like, oh, that's something people do for fun. You know, they actually want to be involved in the experience of doing it. Why would you want to automate it? Um, so I was kind of confused there, but they, they brought about a couple of interesting points. Um, first of all, they talked about how all of these efforts, as I mentioned, have been focused on driving in the road, but sometimes your car might eventually lead to a path that is not paved, that doesn't have signs. So having some sort of off-roading autonomous traversing algorithm figured out would be beneficial. Yeah. I mean, Nelly and I just took a big trip to Washington, right? Right. 1600 miles all around different national parks, beautiful scenery. Um, A good portion of that was on unpaved gravel roads in these national parks without signage, Mm -hmm. um, without anything on Google Maps, right? So in a world where you become more and more reliant on the safety features of your car to be able to understand what's going on um, in rural areas and in a lot of areas outside of the city centers, it makes a lot of sense to have, you know, build in some rigor for the situations where someone's not on a paved road. Exactly. And... The other, the the second part of this argument is that you know right now I've seen videos of of these like companies having trial offerings of check out our autonomous Uber and it's great like it does one or two trips yada yada but when we talk about the not so distant future where we're releasing this to everyone it would make sense to do it in areas where it's like more off road less people around because it limits the uh, possibility of incidents and you know hurting people. Um, with that said, there, there's some challenges when it comes to off-roading, uh, autonomous algorithms and previous efforts of this have actually been kind of limited because they usually depend on annotated maps. Um, if, if you don't know what I mean by that, it's basically like, Hey, around you, there's a leaf or there's a rock. Let's avoid it. Or there's mud. Let's, uh, not go into the mud, but the reason it's not helpful. So if someone has geofenced a dangerous area on a map and the vehicles also within that map it can understand the dangerous areas to avoid but it's not actively perceiving for areas that are dangerous or to stay away from them yes and even if it does like perceive in real time that there's mud there that's not really helpful in terms of how you should be going around it or going through it got it so Basically, what I'm trying to get at, what I've been trying to lead into, is if you have a system that is capable of understanding the dynamics of its surroundings, like a human driving a car, um, it w- you would essentially be agnostic, uh, environment agnostic, meaning regardless of if you have an annotated map of the area or not, um, you can just go through it. So that's what these folks are trying to achieve. And what I mean by dynamics, by the way, is how this moving vehicle will interact with other um, moving parts or static components like rocks or mud in an environment. So uh, how do they do this? This is probably one of the coolest ways that you could do research. They took an ATV off-roading to collect data for five hours. Um, I would love to do, yeah, participate in that research, right? That is exactly what I was thinking. Like I did, what, two years of undergrad research. I never got to take out an ATV. Very jealous. But that's besides the point. Uh, so th- these folks uh, took this ATV out, drove it around for five hours. And by the way, they really push it to the limits. Of course, they, you have to. You have to because they, they wanted to get, you know, in the most extreme cases, what is this interaction like? So they push it to its limits. This thing had 
a, a whole host of sensors all over it to measure how fast the tires are spinning, the amount of uh, force that the shocks are absorbing when they hit a rock or go through mud or slide or whatever. And they composed this data set called Tartan Drive that has 200,000 data points of all these various interactions. Um, the goal is to eventually, you know, make, make an algorithm out of this that could be incorporated with autonomous driving, um, artificial intelligence, like what, you know, we were talking earlier, Cruise and Tesla or whatever, um, to make more educated decisions, to be environment agnostic. And they, they kind of, had a first go at this, which I thought was pretty impressive. They were able to prove that their model um, beats the predecessors that use non-dynamic data uh, in predicting how the uh, the vehicle would behave. Um, one so, thing so they don't necessarily have a control system set up, right? But they do have enough of an understanding of vehicle dynamics in an off-road scenario that say X or Y complication is coming up, they can tell you with more accuracy than existing models how the vehicle is going to perform if it does a, you know, a, a certain type of thrust or throttle or steering through that, through that obstacle. Yes. Yes, that's correct. And one thing that I thought was interesting that they, they again, they made a point of noting is that the way they were controlling this ATV wasn't just by having a human take control of the steering wheel. It was by the, uh, what is it, drive-by-wire, which is where cool. you kind of hook up a system because they were like if if we're going to be trying to map these inputs to the ex expected outcomes and having the robot learn from this or an algorithm learn from this then we should have the human that's you know doing this manual test to collect the data that we're going to use for training be the putting in the exact same inputs um so i thought that was pretty cool. interesting so they're they a lot closer to having a computer driven atv than i thought exactly exactly um and yeah, that, that, that pretty much sums up the core of what these folks did. Uh, they have built the biggest data set that comes uh, from off-roading that the world has ever had. So this is going to be a good foundation for others to build on top of. And they've proven that a dynamic-based system is a lot better, better at predicting than if you just used annotated maps. And it's you know more applicable because you don't have to worry about having an annotated map for every region that you're going to. And let's be honest, if you're in a situation where your car goes off-roading, um, it's probably because your navigation screwed up or something. And the uh, chances are you're not going to have an annotated yeah, or, map. Or you're going to be in a remote area anyway mm -hmm. um, that, that wouldn't have an annotated map anyway. So yeah, that, exactly. that makes total sense. And it it's the more rigorous of the solutions, right? As opposed to um, hoping for someone out there to make an annotated map for every single off-road terrain in the entire world. Instead, you build a, a model that's rigorous enough for the vehicle to understand what's going on and understand how to get itself out of a sticky situation. You got it, man. It's all about these baby steps. We take one step at a time. It was annotated maps at the beginning. It was kind of okay. Now we're moving on to dynamic uh, artificial intelligence to understand the surroundings. So it's... It's the future. That's what it is. I think it's super sweet. And if anything in this episode tells us, right, these researchers, some of the brightest folks in the world at these colleges and universities, they're spending time and efforts to make sure that the future of driving is safe. Um, it's eco-friendly. It's fast. I mean, I think right off the top of my head um, about the opportunity for my commute to be 20 minutes faster or whatever, or 20% faster, right? 20% less traffic. Um, this, this sounds like a bright future. Thanks to these teams from MIT and Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Sign me up for that. The 20% thing totally sold me. And, and a car that's, uh, safe enough to understand when it's off road and how to get me out of a sticky situation. I'm all about it, man. 
Yeah. All right. I think this is a good spot to end the episode on. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it, man. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, we'll see you in the next episode. Peace. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by WeWelver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit WeWelver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.